If you want to open up your Bible with me, we're going to be in Revelation 21. This is the best of the best series. I know, quite a bold title, right? But we're looking at some of the most powerful, some of the most impactful passages in all of Scripture. And we're going to be in the second to last chapter of the entire Bible today, Revelation 21. And before I read the text this morning, I almost feel obligated to ask you a question. So, uh, so, so listen closely here. We're about ready to read basically the last, the last page of the Bible. And I have to ask, have you read the Bible? <laughs> Think about this. You know the people who love to read novels, and, they, and, and, and I know you, you know who you are. You're out here. You know, you pick up the novel, and you immediately turn to the last page of the, of the story, and you read the last page first. You don't have to raise your hand if you do that. I already see some people nodding. I see some people shaking their heads in disgust at people who would do that. But, but there are reasons, and I've even, I've even talked to my son about this before. I, I caught him doing it once. I was like, oh, what are you doing? You're reading the last page first? What is this? And, and, and he's like, I just wanted to see what was going to go. I was like, okay. And I didn't quite understand it then. I, I've, uh, I've listened to a few other people talk about this. Some people just, you know, they get anxiety. They, they have to know what's next. And they can't even really fully enjoy the story because it's all about what's the next page going to say. So if they have a little idea of what's coming next, they can then soak in the rest of it. Other people just want to straight up know, is this going to be a waste of my time or not? Like, does this have a good ending? So before I read this and before I invest myself into this, I want to know how it ends. Well, the Bible is not just any old novel, obviously, but it does really help to know how this all ends. And I would say there's something very interesting when you, when you take that whole idea of reading, knowing the ending and then follow, you know, backtracking all, to all the rest of the story. And that's, that, is, that is, a lot of people don't really fully know how the Bible ends. They don't know. I find that interesting and even a little sad. They've heard other people talk about the ending, but they haven't really read the ending for themselves. And they have an idea about what it says, but a lot of people, even Christians, they get bogged down in the middle of the story. Now, this is where this illustration, you know, falls, falls to really, really be great. Because unlike a dry novel that starts to drag in the middle, it's actually the opposite reason for Scripture. Because the middle is so good. What happens in the middle of God's story? Jesus comes to earth. And he dies on the cross, and he defeats sin and death, and Jesus wins. And we live, and we have life, right? It's the best ever. So it's so good. The middle is so good that a lot of times we just kind of fade out, and we just solely focus on that, and we miss the ending completely. But I would say the middle is so good because the beginning is so, is so bad, all right? You have all these years of God's people rejecting God, going their own way. Fall, you know, the darkness of sin in this world, it gets really heavy. It gets really dark, and it is painful. And that's why the darkness is so dark. It's why the, the light shines so bright when you get to Jesus Christ. But you have to finish the story. 
And the middle of the story makes the end of the story even better. So we have to finish. And you would never do that with a good book. You wouldn't just be like, oh, my word, the middle of this is incredible. This is such an amazing story. I love it. I love it. I love it. And then just not finish it. You would, you would read all the way to the end. So that's what we're going to do in God's word today. Look with me in Revelation 21, and let's read the first few verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." So this morning, I have three simple points from Revelation 21. It's the very end of the Bible. And these points are everything, everything for you, because they tie up the story. And many people wander through life. They're trying to figure out their place in life. They're trying, you know, they're, they're, they're hunting for an identity. They're grasping for purpose at this or that, all the different things around them. It's almost as if they've read the book, but they haven't finished it. They have an idea how it ends, but they don't have clarity. And this week, just like the last couple weeks, we have a few more life verse candidates right here in the text. Look at verse 3 again. The dwelling place of man is with God. This is point one this morning. Number one, I want you to see why he created you. It's because the dwelling place of God is with man. He created you to be his child, to be his people, and to be your God. And if that wasn't already clear enough in Genesis throughout the rest of the Bible, where it consistently tells us that, the, that our purpose is to know him. It's, it's to become like him. It's to bring him glory, to glorify him. And God's glory is everything that is true about him. It's all of his character, his truth, his justice, his mercy. And when we live those things out in our life, we are showing the glory of God. Your, your purpose, the, the reason you were created was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To walk with him and talk with him, just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
And for many people, this almost sounds too good to be true. It's just like this spiritual concept that's, it's like a, like a mystical hope that's out there. Um, you know, maybe I could get close to it, maybe other people could get it, but it's just not for me. I just, my life is just too hard, too messed up. I'll never fully get there. We'll look again at these verses because this isn't just some hypothetical from an alternate universe. If you were a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of God, this is your destiny right here in Revelation 21. He created you to be his child, to be his people, and to be your God. And if you don't have that and you don't believe that and you don't know that, you can't have full peace. You can't have the fullness of peace. You can't have ultimate confidence and boldness. You can't be totally secure in your identity if you don't know that to be true. There's no way. Because God created you to know him. He made you with eternity in your heart. And you were, even if you find satisfaction in other things, it will never bring you lasting contentment, total fulfillment, because you were made for your God. Your creator made you for himself to be in relation with you. So Solomon proved it. Solomon pointed it out. We were just in a series in Ecclesiastes. You can never buy fulfillment. And this is a, this is a truth that, that rings clear throughout all of Scripture. It's the foundational truth that changes the way you look at your life. It changes the way you look at everyone else. Now, let's back up for a minute. We're here in Revelation 21. And we talked about how this is the way God has always revealed it from the very beginning in Genesis 1, when God created the earth, God created Adam and Eve, he created human beings. But in John's revelation, he is actually unfolding right now the end of the world as we know it. You know, quite the season to talk about that, right? I mean, Christmas is coming up. We're thankful for, for everything that we have here on earth. But this world is not going to stay the same forever. This world is going to pass away. This earth will not last, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth that will replace it. And in the book of Revelation, you can have your opinion on all the particulars. Where I'm going to really try hard not to get in all of that today. There's, there's a whole lot I could say about um, the end times and, and the prophecies of all the end times. Like It's really fascinating to look back at church history and see how things ebb and flow, like something gets really popular, and then it gets too popular, and, and then you have people who critique it and attack it, and then something else comes up and gets popular, and then something else, and then there's a reaction to that, and then some, another theological viewpoint comes in, into, into uh, in vogue. And then it just the cycle just constantly repeats itself. If you look at church history, that's the way it's always been. And there's always the group of people who like love their position so much, they like to down all the other positions, you know, pick on one person who had a weird quirk, and you know, it's, you know I, don't want, I don't want my theology to begin in the 1800s. I want to go all the way back to the beginning. All of it is just a huge mess. And we're going to get to a little bit of that at the end here today. But what I would encourage you to do when you study this out for yourself 
is just interpret Scripture the way you always interpret Scripture. Using the historical, grammatical, literal approach to Scripture. It's not that complicated. It's really not. And when you follow the timeline that, that John reveals throughout the book of Revelation, and you don't dice it all up and you just go in order as he outlines it in Revelation, there's a pretty good blueprint there. I'll just say that. There's a, there's a very good blueprint of what to expect. And then if you so wish, you can piece it in with all the other things from Daniel and, and, and the other prophets in the Old Testament. There, there's a lot of things that you can fill in for sure. But today, we're going to just briefly walk through the end of the world as we know it from the book of Revelation really quickly. And we're going to get here back and we're going to circle back to Revelation 21. But... It's not as intimidating as people make it out to be. The rapture of the church takes place. Then we have immediately after that the marriage supper of the Lamb up in, he up in heaven. This is the feast where Christ and his church are celebrating. The same time the marriage supper of the Lamb is going on in Revelation, another thing is going on down on earth. It's called the tribulation period. And there's three and a half years of peace, and then there's three and a half years of utter calamity and destruction. In this time of Jacob's trouble, God sends two witnesses who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those, those two witnesses spark the 144,000 witnesses who go to the uttermost parts of the earth, spreading the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And during this tribulation period where the world is is cratering. Things are, things are falling apart, literally, and blowing up on fire, literally on fire. People are getting saved. The, God's chosen people, the Israelites, are actually in their last chance to repent and accept the Messiah. They're turning to Jesus Christ. That's what the revelation describes to us. Then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ returns for the second time, and this time, he's not coming as a baby to be ultimately slaughtered for the sins of this world. The second time, he's coming as a king riding a white horse to judge the wickedness of the world. And pick it up with me in Revelation 19, just a couple chapters back. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in, in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So that's when Jesus comes back to judge sin and wickedness. And some people get scared about this. Some people get nervous about this. It's like, oh, no, I, this, is, I, I, this is getting weird. What, what's going on? Well, the truth of the matter is, if you know Jesus as your personal Savior, all of this stuff in the end times that we're going to be talking about this morning, it's either going to be very scary or very comforting. 
And it's only scary if you don't know Jesus. And your sin is going to be judged. But if your sin is under the blood, it's comforting to know that Jesus will judge wicked sinners. They won't get away with all of the pain and injustice that they have caused. Because God is righteous, and he will judge wickedness. That is consistent with his character. And it's comforting to know that. And I'm thankful to know that my sin is atoned for. My sin is under the blood. Well, we have now Revelation 19. Jesus comes back the second time. Um, and as you naturally follow the progression of what, what happens next in Revelation 20, well, Satan is actually bound up, cast into a pit for a thousand years. And this is when Jesus sets up a literal kingdom where literal land promises that he made to his people, Israel, that have never come true are actually now coming true. And in this thousand-year period called the millennium, Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the earth. Satan is bound up in the pit. And uh, go ahead and look at Revelation 20, verse 7 with me. And when the thousand years are ended... We're flying through this fast, but we're, we're going somewhere with this. Just follow along. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He's thrown away into the lake of fire once and for all, for the, all the way for the rest of the world, for the rest of eternity. So this is, where, this is now the point where Peter describes the earth. Remember Peter in his letter, his epistle? The earth is melting away and being consumed by fire. This present earth has completely run its course. I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of questions you may have. There's a lot of discussions you can have. There's a lot of scripture you need to read about all of this, the battle of Armageddon that's just been described here in Revelation 20. But even after, I mean, this, and this, is, this, will bl this blows your mind until you stop and just think about humanity, right? For a thousand years, living in a perfect environment where Jesus Christ is the king of the earth, people are having babies there, multiplication, like th this earth will be unlike anything it's ever seen, right? A, a, a pure, amazing government and authority that is just, how incredible is that? Even at the end of that period of time, Satan will be unbound and unleashed and he will deceive thousands and thousands of people. And those babies that were born during that time will have a decision. Will they accept Christ or reject Christ? And there are going to be thousands of people who reject Christ, who rebel against their creator. And then it'll be over just like that as God calls fire down from heaven. 
Now we're here in Revelation 21. You know, we have, we have a lot to chew on here, um, but this is just the way the story unfolds. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. There's not going to be these big bodies of water that separate people. I think there still will be water because if you read different passages that talk about the new earth, we're still going to have mountains, we're still going to have lakes. Those things are still in existence. It's, it's just basically making this, this point that there will not be a separation of all the people when it says the sea will be no more. And when you get to this point of Revelation 21, you know, a lot of you maybe maybe you see why people don't like to read the end of the story as quite as much because it because it gets pretty wild and, and we like things to be neat and tidy. We like to fully understand everything. And, and there's pieces here that we don't fully understand, of course. But I I remember, I can't, I, I will never forget this really. Maybe you've heard me share this story a, a, a time or two before, but Back when I was in college for a few years, I did this ministry in the summers where we went to college campuses, and we were, our whole purpose was to start Bible studies, to witness to people, so we would do all kinds of fun stuff, like go play Ultimate Frisbee with a group of people, and then afterwards, share Jesus and invite them to a Bible study. And so I was out there at Metro State University in downtown Denver, and I started a conversation with a guy who was sitting over at a picnic table. I walked up to him, started the conversation. I had my lunch, sat down, started eating, because that's the kind of thing I would do. And he very quickly realized what I was trying to do. And he very quickly started telling me his religious beliefs, which he worshipped the sun god Ra the, of, from ancient Egypt. Okay, And so we had a very, uh, this conversation went, went all over the place. But as I started giving him the gospel, I could, tell, I could tell very quickly that this guy's voice was weird, his eyes were weird, and, and put two and two together, you know, he's, he's worshiping an ancient deity, a false deity that is demonic. He was a demonic person. I mean, he was definitely filled, filled with demonic spirits. And so... I mean, he was saying creepy things to me. I probably could have just walked away. But in that moment, I, I mean, I was in a safe environment. There was, you know, it was sunny. It was in the middle of the day. There's people walking by. Um, most of the people walking by had no idea that we were having this kind of a spiritual conversation. But I didn't feel like I needed to just run away from the conversation. And so I just started going into Revelation. And it's just the way the Lord led me in the moment. The Spirit just led me to start talking about Revelation. So we just started walking through every chapter of Revelation, and I said, this is what I believe is going to happen. And this, this very demonic guy just nodded, nodded along, absolutely. He wasn't disagreeing with anything. We got to the Battle of Armageddon, and he's like, yeah, yeah, it's going to happen. Like, he agreed with it all. And it reminded me of of that passage in James, where James says that even the demons believe and tremble. Amen. They know this, is stu this stuff is going to happen deep down. They're not stupid. They know. But what's the difference? Like, like they have this head knowledge, right? 
They know how this is going to unfold. I was pointing out to him, Satan is going to lose, okay? But they still reject Christ. Why is that? It's because they have a sinful heart. They have rebelled against their creator. The difference is you can know factually, intellectually what's going to happen, but if your heart hasn't repented and turned and you haven't asked for forgiveness, you're in rebellion against your creator. But here we are, Revelation 21. It's, it's heavy, it's mysterious. I can feel, I can feel the spiritual like just presence, you know, the spiritual warfare presence, even in the room right now, just talking about this. But here we are in Revelation 21, and we have good news. The first heaven and the first earth pass away. New Jerusalem is coming down, ushered down. God has prepared the new Jerusalem for his people. And I love the picture that God gives us in the New Testament about his church. In Ephesians 5, he calls the church the bride of Christ, that he will present without blemish and without spot. And again, that's not our own doing. That's by the blood of Christ with which he washes us clean and heals our brokenness. But here, right here, Revelation 21, this city, the new Jerusalem, is prepared and adorned for the new earth that God is creating. As a bride is adorned for her husband. I was just at a wedding a couple weeks ago. Julie was doing a wedding coordinating thing, and I'm usually in the position where I'm like officiating weddings. We have a lot of amazing weddings at Doxa. We've had some incredible ones in, in, the, in the past, and I'm looking forward to some, some ones in the future. I love weddings. But even as I was like helping Julie at this wedding a couple weeks ago, and I was like working on the charcuterie board, which was totally out of my comfort zone, Julie told me exactly what to do, and I was just like copying her, her, her blueprint that she gave me. Uh, when I was busy, I was hustling, you know, I was like busting the, the tables and stuff. But when the bride walked down the aisle, everybody stopped, right? Everybody had to get a look. Like you can't, you can't not look. At a, at a bride on her wedding day, walking down the aisle, her, her, her husband is there, everyone is there. What an, amazing, what an amazing picture. What a beautiful, incredible scene. That's the way God chooses to describe his preparation of the new Jerusalem, the new capital city of the new earth, that he is preparing for you and for me who know Jesus Christ in the new earth one day. I love it. And then in verse 3, John's vision, looking ahead to the future, hears a loud voice from the throne, from the throne of God, the Almighty. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is something to be thankful for. God created you to dwell with you. And we caught, we've used that word dwell the last couple weeks. We've been talking about this idea of staying with God, dwelling with God. Here it is again. 
when everything comes full circle, in the end, in the last page of the, of the story, God's purpose is to dwell with his people. You were made to be in relation with him. And as you read the next chapter and a half here, the very, very end of the Bible, you piece together the other prophecies of Daniel and Isaiah. There's a lot of details about this new earth that, that aren't as well known as they should be, and it's really a travesty. But you will have your national heritage. You will still be known by that. You, you will still be known as, as the nation that you came from. You will have gifts to use in the new earth. You will have endless things to learn. You will have endless places to explore. Just think about all the cities that will be built, all the places you can go. You know, when we see Jesus' resurrected body in the Gospels, we get a little glimpse of that after Jesus died and rose again, and he came back with his resurrected body on earth for, for a very, very brief season. You know, he, he could... He could instantly travel from place to place. He just appeared in the room, right, where the disciples were at. And then he appeared on the shore. Like he, I mean, he didn't have any limitations there on travel. He still looked like himself. The disciples recognized him. He even still had the scars from his crucifixion. He was still bearing those scars as a remembrance. But Jesus had a resurrected body, and we don't know for sure what our resurrected bodies will be like. The best we can go off of is what Jesus' resurrected body was like. And I mean, you can, you can have this discussion at, at, at lunch today if you want. Like, I mean, you can, your guess is as good as mine. But I tend to think, you know, wait, there won't be aging. No, I don't see why we would age. Like, how could we age if we're going to live for all of eternity, Right? So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, maybe we're all like that. Our resurrected bodies in the, in the new heaven, in the new earth, maybe we'll all be that like prime middle-aged life like Jesus was when he was 33, when he came back from the cross, right? I don't know for sure. Again, you can, you can make your own assumptions from scripture on that. But there's a lot to think about here. This is not us just wearing a white robe, plucking a harp, and singing songs 24-7 for the rest of our lives. And, and some people have that idea, unfortunately, that that's what heaven will be like when the Bible never says that. Yes, we will be worshiping God, but do we only worship God through song? I love worshiping God through song. I, I mean, this morning was incredible, right? The songs we sang this morning were unreal. I can't even, I, I am so excited to sing in a, in, a, in a choir with millions and millions and millions of people praises to our God. That's going to be incredible. We're not going to even want to leave that. But we will because we will be on a new earth and we will have gifts and abilities. We will have a mind. We will have things that we can discover. We will be using our God-given talents and abilities, just like we do down here with the curse of sin holding us back. We won't have any of those things holding us back in the new earth. I can't, I can't I, and it, as God's people who walk with him and dwell with him, who know him, are using their creative minds that God gave them, it is going to be unbelievable, beyond what you can even really imagine. That's the new earth that he's preparing for us. So there you go. 
There's a glimpse of the end of the story as he brings it all full circle. And this is the greatest story of the world. You know how great the gospel is, right? Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. He gives you new life. He won. Yes. And then somehow it even gets better because we get to live with him and dwell with him. And, and be with our friends and family and make new friends. And we don't have the limitations and the aches and the pains. Look what this goes on to say, verse 4 again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Wow. It's incredible. This is the second point today. Number two, feel how he loves you. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. This is such a good verse. There's so much to think about in this verse. Just meditate on, on what this is saying. It does not say that he will wipe away your memories. Maybe you have a few memories that you're hoping he, he would just erase. It doesn't say that, though. You aren't a robot where, where he can just clear your database and reset the factory settings. It's not how you were created. Your memories do fade, but your memories also shape you. And there's nothing in here that says he's just going to erase people from existence. That's not what he says. We're clearly in a place right now where this is beyond me. <laughs> this is beyond all of us, right? We're in, we're in territory where I cannot give you all the answers. But what we need to know is right here in the text. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. So somehow, some way. Being in the presence of Jesus, seeing how great he is, how good he is, how much he loves you. He chose you. He died for you. Being in his presence is going to be so good that the worst things in life, your very worst memories, the things that will still bring tears to your eyes even to this day, those tears will be wiped away. They will be met by your great comforter. And that only he can actually save and, and fix for you. But he's going to do that somehow, some way. Something that we could never do. Some of us will have joyful tears. Some of us will have some painful tears probably. But our great comforter, our ultimate counselor, will wipe those tears away for good. And death will be no more. Being in his presence will be so good that nothing else will matter. Everything else will pale in comparison. And the aches and the pains of this world will be over. They will be a distant memory on the new earth. Now, you don't have to believe this. I can't make you believe this, I should say. You may think this is too good to be true. But does this excite you? Yeah. I know it does for me. Do you, and, and I have to ask, do you really believe this? Because there's a lot of Christians who love Jesus and they don't ever even think about this. 
They're so focused on the here and now. And what my, life is do, what, what my life is bringing me right now that you don't even look ahead in hope to what God is preparing for you. If you don't believe this, what keeps this vision of the future from being the great hope of your life? What keeps this from being your expectation that drives you to make it through the hard times? Well, it might be you're not so sure this future will actually happen. You're really captivated by the truth that, you know, I, I, is this really, really going to happen to me? Can I really share such intimacy with God and have that kind of perfect joy? And it is hard. It's hard to keep unseen glories in mind when the trouble you see every day feels more real and is more pressing. Or maybe God's work in you seems painfully slow. So it's, it's hard for you right now in this moment to believe that he has this kind of plan, this amazing of a future in store for you. Or maybe it's something else. I don't know. But here's why you have to believe this. You have to accept this as true. Look at verses 5 through 7 again. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the third point today. Know who renews you. Know who renews you. It's Jesus. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's like he's saying, I'm the A to Z. And Jesus spoke this world into existence. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all there. Just go read Genesis 1. They're all there. We, plural, they're there. Spoke this world into existence, and he is actually preparing a new heaven and a new earth where he will dwell with his people forever. This is how God ends the story of his revelation the entire story of the Bible. This is what we have right here. It ends with Jesus, the beginning and the end, finishing it all. It is done. The entire world and everything in it was made to bring him praise and honor and glory. And we, as his people, can thrive and have joy and have peace when we live for his glory, not our own glory. When you live for his glory... You receive all of his blessings in the process. When you live for your glory, your world is really small. And it never really always works out. Because you are human and you fail. It's so small compared to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But here's how he finishes it. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. I love this verse. 
And when I read this, I can't help but think of Isaiah 55, verse 1, the passage we read in our scripture reading this morning. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Put that verse right up on the screen for you. How is that possible? Did you catch that when Lee read that this morning, at the beginning of the service? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. He who has no money, come buy and eat. How are you supposed to buy wine and milk when you don't have any money? What's Isaiah talking about? It's like, uh, it's like you go to the Christmas festival, right? Like anybody go into Dickens of a Christmas coming up this weekend? You go to one of those, those places this time of year, you bring your little kids over there and they're selling hot chocolate and they're selling chocolate fudge and, and what do the kids want? They're not asking for wine or milk, they're asking for the chocolate fudge, right? Like I, I wanna buy that. But you have no money. So you can't buy that. But wait, how do they still then get the chocolate fudge? Well, mom or dad gives them the money, right? You are given this money that you did not earn, and then you go buy this fudge or hot chocolate or a Santa hat or whatever it is that you're buying at the Christmas festival, right? You buy it from the money that was given to you as a free gift. And that's what God does for us through his son, Jesus Christ. We are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we cannot save ourselves. We can't do it. But by the grace of God, he sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus took our sinfulness and he exchanged his righteousness for our sinfulness. It's the great exchange. It's his robes for mine. So now when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we can have life. The only way you could ever buy wine or milk without money is if someone else covers it for you. They own the stand and they give you the money. And that's exactly what God did for us through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 explains this perfectly. And please turn there and read it with me if, if you like to follow along. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. You're going to hear another familiar, a familiar parallel here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So here is your offer of salvation. It's free. It's without payment. Because Jesus paid the price that you could never pay. 
It's his free gift. It's offered to you by his own merit. He lived the sinless life that you did not live. And now he is giving you his righteousness in exchanging in exchange for your sin. And he paid the price for your sin by dying on the cross. Amen. Worship team, you can come up. And I just have to ask, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for this? Do you see your need for purpose? Do you see your need to be saved from your life of sin and actual hopelessness because you are actually facing the dark side of his judgment, not the new earth that he is preparing? Do you see the power in knowing how this all ends? Verse 8 describes the people who reject Jesus Christ. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's the same place Satan went, the lake of fire. And that is their portion because they have not been able to buy and eat. Because they have not confessed their sin and accepted Jesus Christ and received the gift of eternal life. I'm not trying to scare anyone today. I just want you to see the truth. These are the words of God. <clears throat> you don't have to be that, ver that verse 8 person. No one in here wants you to reject God and to go down the path of verse 8. It doesn't have to be you. Please don't let it be you. Accept Jesus Christ and receive the gift of eternal life. Who's looking forward to this? I know I am. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and he walked with them in a garden. And he's going to do the same thing when it's all said and done. It's just going to be a lot bigger garden. Way bigger with way more people for an endless amount of time. You were created to walk with him and talk with him and enjoy him forever. Sin got in the way. Sin broke that relationship. But God provided a way of salvation. And when you think about the end of the world, let's just end with this. What are you looking for? Some people, they're looking for the Christians to do all these good things and to change the world and to bring revival. And then, then Jesus can come back once we do our job. There's a name for those people. I won't even say because I don't want to confuse you or add something else to this that doesn't need to be added. But that's a theological viewpoint on the end times. There's other people who are just so wrapped up in all these details, they're just trying to figure out who the Antichrist is going to be. So much so that they're not even really looking for Jesus. They're just looking to check all the boxes on their little timeline and to figure out who the Antichrist is, which is the anti 
thing that you should be doing. <laughs> you should be looking for Christ to return. That's what we're all called to do. Stand up with me, church. We are waiting for King Jesus to return and to take us home to be with him. And he can sort out all those details in Revelation. You can read, read it. You can come up with your own timeline. I'm going to stick with the timeline Revelation gives us. But the point here is, let's look forward to the end of it all. It's amazing. We have hope in what Jesus is going to accomplish, what he is preparing for us. I want you to think about that. I want you to pray about that. And let's sing about that, church. Let's sing to our Savior.